right. Good afternoon, everyone. And look at us, bang on time. That's how you know it's a writer's festival. Everything is punctual. Uh, I am manifestly not Benjamin Law uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So that's going to be your first and only disappointment for the afternoon. My name is Michael Williams. I'm the artistic director of Sydney Writers Festival. And it's wonderful, as ever, to be back in the Pioneer Women's Garden for Adelaide Writers Week. Um, uh, we are on Ghana country. I pay my respects to elders, past and present, and members of Ghana community who are with us today. Uh, we acknowledge country in part to acknowledge that the moral and legal implications of invasion remain unresolved to this day. Um, it's also uh, worth pausing for a moment when we uh, reflect on the country that this event takes place on uh, to think about how that relates to our subject that we're discussing today, which has been Builders' Revolution and Reform, Climate and Race. I think you'll agree that's a classic pre-dinner topic of conversation and uh, should absolutely romp through pretty quickly. I don't know if you've noticed, but things out there have gone to hell in a handbasket, uh, whether it is uh, war or climate uh, or pandemic or any of the other horsemen of the apocalypse, things don't feel terribly good out there. And so here we are at a writer's festival, and I like to think that that's not a case of putting our head in the sand. I don't think that's a case of uh, willful escapism. Uh, we are here because we're engaged citizens who are passionate about the world that we're in, and we look to our writers, our poets, the unofficial legislators of the world, uh, to guide us and give us a better idea of how we might do things better. And we have a formidable panel to help us with that today. Uh, down the far end of the panel is Michael Muhammad Ahmed. Uh, some of you may have seen his session earlier today. Yeah, big round of applause. Author of The Tribe, The Lebs, The Other Half of You, uh, the uh, brains and passion behind uh, Sweatshop Writers Movement in Western Sydney, uh, and a formidable thinker and activist. Uh, next to him, the only international who managed to sneak through the borders to get in person <laughs> to Adelaide Writers Week this year. Uh, Joelle Taylor is uh, the winner of the 2021 T.S. Eliot Poetry Prize. Uh, her book, Kanto and Othered Poets, is an absolute masterpiece. I tell you to go and buy it in the bookshop, but you can't, because everyone else already has. But you need to go and find a copy uh, very quickly. Extraordinary poet and activist. Big round of applause for Joelle. Yeah, thank you. And to my immediate left, a man who is third only to decency and accountability in the list of things that we miss from Australian politics. Uh, it's, uh, and, you know, the other two are kind of interchangeable. We miss them all the time. He's also now an author of Full Circle, A Search for the World That Comes Next. Please welcome Scott Ludlam. Now, it seems to me three extraordinary writers who are characterised and defined by the fact that in addition to their own uh, artistic, cultural and intellectual pursuits, they are all uh, extraordinary advocates and activists. And it's the intersection between those uh, different ideas of themselves uh, that I think we're going to dig into uh, this afternoon. And, Mohammed, I might kick off with you because you are one of my favourite novelists working in Australia today. And I occasionally worry that you spend more of your time nurturing and developing others than giving over to your own art. And I'm curious about whether that's a, that's a conflict that troubles you ever. Um, thank you for the question. Uh, you know, uh, if I spent all my time writing, I wouldn't know the point in doing it. Um, the, you know, we're talking about revolution and change. And um, I, some of you might know this, but some of you might not. Uh, last year, we lost a very important global intellectual named Bell Hooks. who's an African-American feminist, scholar, writer, and activist. And when I was a young man, I, I read a quote of hers that uh, radically changed my life. I memorized it, in fact. All steps towards freedom and justice in any culture are always dependent on mass-based literacy movements because degrees of literacy determine how you see what you see. And I'm always being asked uh, by people who are reading my work, how do you change the world? 
particularly when it comes to conversations about race. And I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know the answer to how you start. And that's through reading, writing, and critical thinking. And, and so it's my moral obligation to empower the next generation to be able to do so. Does, does that... How, how then do you... Because I think that's a really powerful position and I, I applaud it utterly. But then when it comes to your own writing, do you have to do a mental gear shift that that's not somehow indulgent or, you know, that that is on a continuum with the same work that you're doing elsewhere? Um, you know, my new book's called The Other Half of You. And sometimes when I'm in a good mood and I have to think up something to sign for someone, sometimes what I would sign for them is the other half of writing is reading. I have the wonderful pleasure of reading the work of uh, thousands of culturally and linguistically diverse young people in Western Sydney who I'm, I'm mentoring. And so I become a better writer through teaching reading and through reading their work. And so I don't know if I would be as good a writer if I gave it more time. I think that makes a lot of sense. I, Joel, I'm, I'm interested, the uh, second part of the title of Kanto is uh, Othered Poems. Yeah. Um, there are a few things less othered than a winner of the T.S. Eliot Prize, <laughs> it seems to me. You, you uh, have an extraordinary... Uh, body of work, an extraordinary reputation of writing powerfully of and for a particular community. And yet you're being embraced at this point in your career by the literary establishment, such as they are. Is that yeah. a mental gear shift? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, a huge, it was a huge surprise. When I was nominated, I thought it was a wild card and it was about kind of acknowledging the work I'd done within the community. And because you probably don't know who I am, um, the work I'd done in the community was with young people. I founded the National Youth Slams of the UK and I spent 18 years um, providing platforms for young people from marginalised communities, from the ends as we call it, space for them to kind of reclaim their voices, rediscover their voices and, to f and, and crucially to give them the platforms so it's not just about them speaking, it's the other half, it's about the listening to them. Um, so it was a kind of, winning the prize was I think partly because of the book, it has to be about the book, but it's an acknowledgement of those 18 years as well. Um, because for me, like, activism is part of the writing, like it is with you as well. And I think of it as artivism, so there isn't a mental shift between leading a workshop and then going home and writing something that's kind of unconnected to that. It's a, it's, you're writing into the same energy. And it's very strange to suddenly go from being one of those marginalized writers to, to being center stage. Um, but this is why we do it. We're trying to kind of, we're trying to open up different narratives, you know, and the best way of doing that is to kind of, is to get more attention. You know, and I, I still don't know. It's only been a, a month or so. I still don't know quite what's going to happen. If anything will shift, if anything will shift for other people. But the feedback that we're getting has been really positive because it, people like me don't win prizes. People like me just don't. We're coming from the ends. It doesn't happen. And particularly a prize like the Elliott Prize, which is very, very highfalutin. I, I did. I read somewhere that T.S. Eliot only used the S initial in his name because otherwise his name was Toilet Backwards. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if there's any truth to that. It's but completely that's, true. I'm, I'm just <laughs> carefully going the other way to highfalutin wherever I can. <laughs> um, this may be too big a topic for today, but it seems to me that the language and discourse around sexuality and in particular gender in the UK is at a particularly toxic peak yes. at this point in time. It, it's just uh, such fraught territory. Um, do you feel a responsibility, given, uh, given your work to date, to use the Elliott Prize, use this position uh, actively as an activist one? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's what it's, I wrote into that volatility, that toxicity. I wanted to remind people of who we are, 
and our to call for solidarity within the LGBTQI community to bring us all together. And those of you who don't know what's been happening, I mean, it's worldwide this debate is underway um, between gender critical feminism and trans activism, or more than that, between gender critical feminism and queer theory. So different ways of thinking about sexuality and gender. And it's created this incredibly dangerous environment in which women like me um, are kind of seen as, as the bottom, the absolute bottom of the pile, scum. You know, if you, read, if you follow social media, then lesbians are really seen as the enemy in lots of different ways. And so I wanted to use Kanto and other poems as a way of reminding us that we are one community. And we, I was asked a really interesting question, actually. It was the very final question of my event a couple of days ago, and a, a woman stood up and she said, I've got two words for you, lesbian feminist. And I'm... Because I thought she was going to say something else. I was like, oh, my God. Um, <coughs> lesbian feminist, and I'm very confused by you from reading the book. I don't know where you stand. And I was like, good. That's the point. That is the point. Right. I refuse to um, add to the toxicity. You know, because if you look at what's happening in Chechnya, in Uganda, Nigeria, three quarters of Poland is an LGBT free zone. We have gay men being murdered in streets of the UK. All of these things, these are the real issues. This is real. And if people, you know, fascists come and they invade us, they're not going to be able to tell the difference between someone like me and someone like a lesbian feminist or even a trans man or non-binary. They're just going to kill us. Do you see what I mean? So I think it's time we pulled together. And the, the greatest form, I think, of activism is if you leave a legacy of a book for people to find and make their own kind of decisions from that. Scott, welcome to the world of being an author. Uh, instead of your, your previous uh, incarnation as a senator, I'm curious about the path between the two and the extent to which writing felt like a, a necessary, maybe even inevitable extension of the activism and the politics you'd done before. I don't, I don't think of it as inevitable. Um, I'm going to keep this short because I want to hear more from these two, to be honest. You, you folk can hear from me any time. Um, I, I really, I'd written quite a few essays before. I like to write, and I was also in this interesting position where I was writing a lot of my own speeches. So it was, it, a lot of it was designed for spoken word and not to be read on the page. Um, but I hadn't attempted a book before. And so the book that you've got there is an attempt to fold this incredible jumble into something vaguely coherent. It's up to others to decide whether I'd managed or not. But um, a certain element of that kind of work, of political work, is just very destructive of concentration. Um, you don't really get to write long-form stuff while you're in there. So I was just really using the opportunity of suddenly being quite unexpectedly unemployed to have a go at something long-form. Did you have a kind of... From the outset, did you have an idea about utility? Like, were you thinking in terms of manifesto? Were you thinking in terms of a dream reader who might be changed by it? <laughs> uh, definitely not a manifesto. I don't think people, people like me shouldn't be allowed to write manifestos. Like, history is not a happy place for, for politicians writing manifestos. But um, the principal audience was... was um, I don't know if this is going to sound selfish or what. The principal audience was kind of me. It was like, how, can, how could I be better at doing this work? How come we're getting our asses kicked? Like, how come we are in such catastrophic trouble? Um, so it was an attempt to put together bits and pieces of social movement theory combined with what I'd learned while I was in office to try and come up with better, a better set of answers for how come we're on the back foot. It's not a bleak book. I, it, I ended up actually, I hope, reading quite optimistic. But um, it was written for a person who was deeply worried about the state of things, and but also confident that collectively we do have what it takes to to fight back. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think uh, across all of all three of your work, 
whether it's questions of race or class, sexuality, gender, um, whether it's uh, where we are in a conversation about climate or, uh, or community organising, one of the questions to me is about whether there is cause for optimism in the voices that are getting a platform now that perhaps weren't a few years ago. Mo, is that... Sorry, Mohammed, is that the trajectory? You, do you feel optimism about that? I can, I can answer that question, um, but it will take me a couple of minutes. That's okay. It's one thought, though. It's not a convoluted answer. Um, the, the Palestinian uh, literary scholar, uh, Edward Sayed, who died of leukemia in 2012, um, often talked about how when you look at Arab literature, you know, ancient Arab literature, it's uh, incredibly complex. It's very romantic. It's very poetic. It's very humanizing. But you generally couldn't find it on any university courses in the West, which is strange. It's a literature that's thousands of years old, and it's a mm. literature of 400 million people. And his theory, was a very sensible theory, is that the West was deliberately uh, keeping it out of its citizens' hands. Because if you're going to invade their countries and slaughter their children, you want to make sure that those people are as dehumanized as possible so that we don't feel any sympathy for them. Which, of course, those kinds of conversations are coming up quite a lot at the moment because the Australian government is demonstrating quite a lot of sympathy for the Ukrainians right now, but generally doesn't show an equal amount of sympathy and compassion for the Palestinians and other Arabs. So, but you know, but here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing. Because what I'm saying, what I want to say is actually not a political statement. It's a very personal one. Um, in 2019, I'm sure you all remember that an Australian-born white supremacist uh, went to New Zealand in Christchurch and massacred 51 Muslims peacefully conducting their Friday prayers. And that, that day, I was getting the notifications on my phone, you know, that something had happened in Christchurch. And as the day unfolded, the, the number um, kept racking up, you know, on my phone, like, and, until it got to 51. And I, I remember I came home. Uh, it was late at night, and I, I got into bed with my son and my wife. My, my son was asleep, you know, but he, he woke up. Uh, just, he could sense that I got in the bed. And I remember he, he grabbed my arm and he kind of snuggled it like, a, like he was snuggling a teddy bear. Um, and, he, and I remember he said, uh, 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 will you stay with me forever, Dada? You know? And I remember in that moment just wishing he would disappear. Like, like just turn into stardust. Because I didn't want him to live in a world uh, that hates him so much for something that he can't help. And I ask myself all the time how much different uh, that shooters, the Christchurch shooters um, experience of Muslims would be if he actually went to a school where he got to study Arab and Muslim literature. And we're in a very special moment in time now because there's so much of it. There's my books, and I'm honoured to talk about that, but I can't help but notice that uh, Amani Haydar is in the crowd, and her book, uh, The Mother Wound, you know, if my book is about uh, beautiful Arab Muslim fathers, her book's about the amazing Arab and Muslim women in our community. And I really do think that The Mother Wound is the other half of the other half of you. I think, I mean, I think you're right. Amani's book is an astonishing book. I want to just follow up on one thing you said there, though, Mohammed, which was, you know, I'm really grateful to you for the generosity of sharing a, a personal story in response to that. But I, I, I'm interested in the, the burden of feeling like uh, you're expected to make everything a political story. You know, like, you stopped yourself. You said, I'm not going to give a political answer, I'll give a personal one. 
And I'm interested in that distinction for you and the ways in which um, you're able to tell your personal stories, enable other writers to tell their personal stories and not have it inevitably be seen as an act of politics. I think it, it, it is inherently political. Uh, I was quoting Bell Hooks before. Uh, another fantastic quote of hers, uh, coming to voice, the act of moving from silence to speech as a revolutionary gesture. When you are a minority, whether that's because of race or class or gender or sexuality, uh, everything you do is a political act because you're coming to voice. You're declaring your existence. And your existence is a form of resistance. But this is why I think it's important to differentiate when I'm speaking to you that it's not political, it's personal. It's because I think we forget that it just impacts us on a human level. That separate to all the rhetoric following Christchurch, I just have to go home to my boy and I just have to find a way to raise him to, to live a safe and happy life and also a moral and just life. And that very personal connection that every Muslim in the world has to feel to every tragedy that happens to us, as well as some of the tragedies that our community commits to others. Noel, I imagine the idea of existence as um, resistance is uh, one that resonates with you in a pretty big way. Can you talk about what, for you, your early reading was in terms of seeing and seeing people, hearing voices that you recognised uh, as you were kind of coming up? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the, the quick answer is there was nothing to read. Um, you're invisible in so many ways. I mean, I came out in the 80s in the UK, and then I went back in really quickly, you know, because um, back then it was... Um, it wasn't like it is now coming out where you do it on Instagram, you know, and everybody sends you piles and flowers. But then it was literally coming out, as in get out. So it was a, a declaration of being of exile. And I left. Like everybody, I left the area. What I tried to do was to find, I found punk rock music had a, held a lot of the sort of counterculture that, um, that formed the basis of my work. Um, but I also read, weirdly, I couldn't find myself anywhere, but I found George Orwell, who taught me a kind of critical thinking. And that was very important to me. Um, I think it's really, really important to expand these narratives. You, every book needs to be a mirror for someone. You know, and Mohammed's raised the fact that you're in school and you can't see yourself. You can't see yourself anywhere. Or if you do appear, you're the villain in some way. Um, and you, you internalise all of that. So writing for me is, is an act of resistance. It's also a revolution. It's a way of trying to, um, to conjure ourselves and find our space within the world. I'm trying to think of authors in particular that I was able to connect with. There were, there were American authors like Judy Grahn or um, Adrian Rich as a poet or Pat Barker or Audre Lorde. These were incredible writers who were writing at a time when when it felt like they shouldn't. I think, really, you should write whenever you know that you shouldn't. That, you know, that, yeah, that you're taking words back in some kind of a way. Scott, one of the things in the writing of Full Circle is that you spend a lot of time uh, researching, talking to, exploring different modes of activism from different parts of the world. Did it make you reflect on the activist tradition to which you belonged? Are there things that peculiarly Australian in the way we resist? Well, that's a great question. I think one thing that we have here that's missing in other parts of the world is this incredible tradition of, of resistance for 232 years. You know, I've been involved here with Extinction Rebellion since about 2018, and they like to remind us that the rebellion against extinction in this continent has kicked off in 1788. There's the continuous lineage, a very, very old lineage of struggle and resistance here that it exists in other parts of the world, but it doesn't have, it, it doesn't have that same kind of dimension as what it has here. Um, my work with the anti-nuclear community, including elders like Uncle Kevin Buzzacott uh, and Artie Sue Hasseldine, here, from here in, in, um, in South Australia, 
like informed my sense of when the work chooses you. You know, a lot of people, including myself, had this incredible privilege and luxury of choosing activism, of choosing campaigning, read my way into it through reading books and, and watching stuff on TV. You know, a lot of communities around the world, it chooses them. They don't have a choice. And they also don't have anywhere else to go. So reflecting on that as I was traveling around the world is that's one thing that we've got here that nobody else, nobody else quite has in the same way. Mohammed, I'd really like you to share with this audience because I'm not sure uh, how much uh, the readers of Adelaide would know about Sweatshop, but I think it's such kind of extraordinary and important work at a community level and at a, and at a literary and cultural level. And I'd love it if you'd uh, share a bit with them. Um, thank you, I will. Uh, first, I feel like I should just quickly clarify that I'm not shouting, I'm just talking loudly. Um, and that I'm not angry, I'm just Arab. <laughs> um, because yesterday I was in the hotel having a conversation with someone at my normal tone and a couple of people in the cafe got very upset. And I do, I do think that there's so much conversation about loudness among minorities. You know, the stereotype of the angry black woman. But I, I think it's important to understand that so much of it is a manifestation of pain. Which brings me to Sweatshop. Before you get to Sweatshop, because I, I do think that's a really fabulous and interesting point. I mean, I, I know for a fact the person you were meeting with in the hotel is one of the loudest people I've ever met, so I blame them uh, for a lot of it. But that idea of tone policing, I'd just like to touch on before we go to Sweatshop, if I can, because it does seem to me that there's polite conversation and there's uncomfortable conversation. And I'm curious about how often that happens, that you're told your anger is misplaced or inappropriate or that you have to keep yourself nice if you want to win over a, um, what is often euphemistically referred to as a mainstream audience. Um, you know what's so interesting? Uh, one, of the inter one of the unique characteristics of Australian literature that is uh, written quite a lot by uh, Professor Ivor Indic, who's the editor at Duramondo. Uh, it's his, kind of his life's body of work is on... Uh, one of the uh, attributes of Australian literature is shame and awkwardness. That it's kind of inherent to the way we communicate. A perfect example of this is the word mate. I mean, I've literally seen people punching on, like, you know, just brawling. And they'll call each other mate while they're assaulting each other. <laughs> Fuck you, mate. <laughs> it's, so, you know, there's something kind of very awkward about the Australian language. And it's something about us as a nation that doesn't like to be made uncomfortable, that we, we try and pretend that everything is cool, everything is chill, even when things are very, very tense. But, you know, the, the reason the incident in the hotel was so interesting is because I was having a coffee with a friend of mine and a friend of yours who's a white man, and he lost his cool. And I was just like, you can't do that. I, ca I, can't, I can't get caught up in this. And I want to tell you all why. Last week, I was at the movies. This is the western suburbs of Sydney. It's the most culturally diverse place in the country. We were watching the Batman, and there was a, a black brother and sister in the, in the audience who were talking throughout the whole film, which is, from what I understand, quite a normal part of black culture. There's, you know, live, loud commentary when you're watching a film. And the other people in the cinema got very upset and then a brawl broke out. Literally, they started beating each other. This uh, Pacific Islander man and this young black man. And then the cops came and they rounded them both up. Mm. And by the time I had left the cinema, after I'd given my statement and left the cinema, I saw both of them literally concussed on the floor in cuffs by the police officers. And I, was, and I was like, this started because somebody was talking loudly in a cinema. And I, I just, yesterday, I just couldn't help but think to myself that if, like I'm already a naturally loud speaker, like if I started to shout the way my friend was shouting in my very visibly Middle Eastern body, I couldn't imagine a version of reality for myself where I wouldn't have just been dragged out in handcuffs. Right. And here's the most interesting thing about violence. 
Nobody sees the attack. You only see the retaliation. I would have only been seen as a predator in that moment, not as a person who's enacting self-defense. And so we have to learn, unfortunately, to police ourselves because we are over-policed. There, there was a fantastic piece in The Guardian uh, on the weekend, I think, by Sasanke Mizamang about, uh, about a variation on that, about the nature of uh, protest and dissent in Australia. And it was talking about uh, Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins as being the acceptable uh, face of uh, feminist protest in this country and how much harder it would be as a woman of colour to uh, show the same anger, the same heat... Uh, it wasn't a criticism of either Higgins or Tame. It was more just a reflection on um, on where comfort and discomfort in the public sphere lives and what that means for the way that we can talk about injustice when we see it. Uh, I want to quickly... Um, I'll, I'll do it quick, but I want to answer your question on Sweatshop. I, I'm not going to let that pass, okay. I promise. We will come back Thank to you. it. I just wanted to um, check with Joel because, I mean... Even saying the name of your book of poems means I've said Kanto three times to an Adelaide audience and I'm deeply uncomfortable. Um, good. The audience doesn't seem uncomfortable. No, no, they seem all right. It's good. Adelaide is always far bolder than I expect it to be. But I, I'm, I'm interested in that kind of tone policing and that idea of keeping yeah. yourself nice and um, the difference between that when you are writing for or performing for your own community... Uh, versus when you're doing it for new readers or a wider, wider audience. Yeah, well, the first thing, conto um, is, is an actual word. It's, um, it's an Italian word meaning to recount a personal story. But it's also, the book is made up of cantos and they're about women, so <coughs> conto. And at first, when my, and I didn't, I didn't even name it that, the book. It's just that was a joke between me and some friends. We used to call them, that's doing your conto. And my publisher really wanted to call the book that, and I was horrified, absolutely horrified. And I came up with all these kind of really grand titles, and they were like, no. And eventually I discovered it was an actual word that really fit the meaning of the book. And then I thought, yeah, let's do this. Let's stand by it. And why is the word offensive? The word, shall I actually say the other word? Please. Cunt, the word cunt. Um, Etymologically, comes from the word queen, which comes from the word knowledge. Cunning women. So why are we looking at words to do with women or to do with lesbians as something deeply, deeply offensive? Why is it offensive? It shouldn't be. And all my life, I was expelled from school um, for swearing at a teacher who punched me. The teacher wasn't expelled. I was expelled. And there's this whole idea that you know, if we're, if, we're, if we're policing our own language, we're policing our own thoughts, well, then they've already won, haven't they? We've got the spies inside us already. And I think it's extremely important. I mean, I swear all the time. And one of the reasons I do is that I'm part of a very um, niche kind of art form, poetry. I'm from a working-class community. And when they know that I write poetry, they're like, ooh because it's got that kind of vibe, you know? And so when I'm in these environments like Buckingham Palace or Kensington Palace or, you know, the Royal Festival Hall, it's really good to say fuck. It's really good, you know? Own your mouth. Thank you. <laughs> Mohammed, talk to us about Sweatshop. Uh, well, firstly, I have a, a little question for you. If somebody's just like the best dude in Bankstown, where I, where I live, in the western suburbs of Sydney, it's just a, a really, really awesome guy, and you love him, and you want to express your love for him, what's the nicest thing you can say to that person? I want to ask you if you can Me? guess. Yeah. Um, what's the nicest compliment you can give that guy in Bankstown? You're a babe. Close. It's... Con? Close, yeah, yeah. It's it's sick, cunt. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I'd come to the right. You got country. you got there. I'm I'm very impressed. Yeah, at home. But yeah, it is so important. amazing that we use it in a very empowering way in the western right. suburbs of Sydney. 
this is a very male thing as well. You know, I, I, I work, we have a company called Outspoken. We put on live events. Um, and I've noticed from being around men that they, um, they, you, they are really offensive to one another as a way of showing love. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> if I say these hideous things to you, it shows that I, we trust each other yeah. and you're not going to headbutt me in this moment. Far better to be a sitcom than a mate, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the name of my new book. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, just quickly... You know, the traditional idea of the sweatshop is a place of oppression. Mm. You know, it's a place where people are in these horrible rooms stitching. And we wanted to reclaim that idea. We wanted to make it an empowering, this, the idea of the sweatshop an empowering space. Do you know the, the uh, root uh, meaning of the word text in the ancient Greek is to weave. And so what we did is we created the sweatshop literacy movement as this space of empowerment where people are inside stitching their stories together. Mm. And so we work with First Nations people and culturally and linguistically diverse people to give them the tools to be able to speak for themselves. And if anyone's interested in finding out more about sweatshop, you can go to our website, which is sweatshop.ws. It is. I've been lucky enough to uh, watch you work, read a lot of the stuff that's come out of Sweatshop, um, uh, kind of firsthand be witness to some of the extraordinary writers who have developed uh, the confidence to own being writers and having voices as a consequence. And I'm interested in... That thing, it seems to me good uh, advocacy is about decentering yourself and finding ways to um, lift up others. And um, so it, your first answer, Mohammed, when you were very uh, self-effacing about your own writing, I do understand that and that tension, but you, mu you must have... No, you mustn't do anything. Tell me... Um, Tell me what you're proudest of from Sweatshop in the past couple of years. Okay, I actually reckon, believe it or not, I can answer that question and the one you were on the verge of asking simultaneously. I have no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, so <laughs> let, me, let me tell you something. You know, I'm going to tell you the truth. Because it might seem like I'm the, the woke activist. But, you know, I'm so tired of identity politics. And I'll tell you why. Because I've got to deal with a lot of my... My whole life's work is working with minority writers. And so often, I'm going to tell you the truth, I hate to say it, but it's not racism, it's that you suck. You're not a good writer. <laughs> and here's the problem. That the conversation about identity is so entrenched in the culture now that you can almost use it as an excuse. And so Sweatshop, what's special about it, I mean, the idea of like the sweaty work of Sweatshop is that we're primarily about skills development. It's about bringing in young people and empowering them to actually learn the craft of creative writing and of storytelling. And then to use those skills to talk about their identities. And I wanna give you a really important example because I think people might get it, but they don't really fully appreciate what I'm trying to say just yet. You know, there's this cliche that cre good creative writing is just a natural talent. You know, it's inherently subjective and it just comes from the cosmos or from God. But you know, let me ask you a question. What's the difference between a metonym, an absolute metaphor and a dead metaphor? What's the difference between autobiography, fiction, and autobiographical fiction. What's the difference between closed first-person perspective and open third-person perspective? Now, these are things you can actually learn. And if you learn them, you can apply them to your creative writing. And if you apply them to your creative writing, your creative writing can get better. Thank you. I do... Um 
I do love that, and I do love that what um, what characterizes your work in Sweatshop is literary excellence. But I am curious about the frustration with identity politics because Joel, you were nodding there as well. Um, it's a space that frustrates you. It is a space. I mean. So I was setting up Slam Basilers, which is the National Youth Slam, and it's, as I explained earlier, what that was about. So for, I think, the majority of that time, my main imperative was to, was to expand narratives and to get these kids and to empower them to be able to speak and to get people to be able to listen to, I mean, and crucially, to get kids interested in writing. And through that, writing being a gateway drug into reading, not the other way around. So for years and years and years, that was the imperative. And then I had a sudden revelation, which was that um, I should stop telling them they were brilliant. I should stop telling them that was enough. That, in fact, I should work to get them to try harder, to push harder. And I think it's a really, it's a really difficult and dangerous dance, you know, because particularly when you're working with people who um, don't come from backgrounds where there's a lot of books, aren't really that interested, in, certainly not interested in poetry, um, it's very easy to put people off and you get a rush when you come on stage. So live, when I talk about Slam Bassett, National Youth Slams, these are live events, you know. Um, but the revolution can only happen when the words get stronger, when you know how to tell the story. Because otherwise, we're all just saying the same thing. And the people are, same people are watching as the people who are on the stage. We're talking to ourselves over and over and over. And I think what Mohammed said about craft, it's absolutely essential. Although I had no idea of those things you were talking about. You know, because what I think it's about is about poetry. How do you how do you tell a poem? How do you use a poem that works on the page? How do you take a, a you know a story that works in the air? How do these things develop? And through that, that's where real change occurs. You know, learning how to how to tell a story properly, how to connect, and your part in the conversation. In a sec, uh, you get to ask your questions of uh, these three extraordinary writers. But before we get there, I am mindful that in the name of the session was the word climate um, and possibly the word revolution. I mean, I'm going to be honest, I should have looked at the name of the session before uh, we threw to audience questions. <laughs> but um, there is, you know, uh, we do have in, um, in the climate crisis a clear and present global... Uh, conversation that is failing and has failed us for way too many years, too many generations. Um, and it is, you know, uh, the need for revolutionary level of change <laughs> is a few decades behind us. This feels pretty urgent. Um, Scott, how? How do you get that level of change when our political inertia, when our corporate interests, when our media apathy are at an all-time high? I think there's actually real cracks in the armour now. I'm more optimistic than I probably was five years ago. Part of it is that we have to call it what it is. And folk who work in this space are starting to suggest that the time for like a gradual and gentle transition, we've left that behind. It was probably there in the 1990s, but they blew it. The industries that are driving us into this catastrophe have been doing everything within their power to prevent this transition that probably all of us at an event like this are, are desperate for. So it's going to be disruptive. It's going to be messy and it's going to be much costlier than it would have been if we had started when we tried to. But I think the old system is, is seriously and significantly starting to break down. You can see signs of it absolutely everywhere. One of the things that gives me hope uh, is that the, the clean energy, the solution stuff, even if we just want to narrow our focus to, to energy for a second, is now cheaper than the dirty stuff. <laughs> the, the good energy is now cheaper than the bad energy. And that's a big deal because that drives everything. That drives, that, that drives the entire economy. The most dangerous thing that we could do now while we're pressing ahead and starting to make real progress is to imagine that all we're trying to do is this narrow, technocratic substitute coal for solar, substitute gas for wind. What we're doing here is principally about justice. 
it's much bigger than just a technocratic conversation about energy supply and parts per million in the atmosphere and this and that. Those things are important, but this is a, this is a justice issue. Uh, and I, I feel that's why I was excited about coming on and listening to these two incredible people, because like everybody can play. This isn't just something for politicians or engineers or architects. This is something for everybody. We all have a part to play in this. Thank you. There is a microphone in the middle here. It's beside the tree. If you're on that side, you can't see it, but I promise it's there. If you're on this side, that's the microphone. Make your way there. Uh, if you have questions, um, uh, probably as per Scott's comment before, manifestos are not encouraged, but, uh, you know, see how you go. Pithy. Just wanted to ask a question about climate change and what uh, Scott would think about the fact that when we had a war in the Second World War, they sold victory bonds so that people could invest, so ordinary people could invest in the challenge. Do you think it's a good idea that whoever wins this next election issues bonds so that ordinary people can invest in climate change solutions? And why hasn't that been put forward by either major party? To, to the last part of the question, I don't know. It seems obvious to me. What is there these days? It's in the order of $2 trillion in superannuation funds looking for somewhere safe and dull, you know, looking for a return on investment that's not going to be risky and volatile. And it, it beggars belief that that's not being put into safe and affordable housing, into renewing public transport, into, like, hardening up our... our um, our communities against the kind of violence that's being done already, the kind of stuff that's happening in Northern Rivers. Have you got enough power to go to Peter Costello and say you've got a fund called the Future Fund? Why don't you actually do something about, about the future? The future? Uh, yeah. No, I'm just a broke writer. Okay. Um, that's going to take a mass movement. Do not look to politicians or ex-politicians to fix that one up. That's on all of us now. Thank you. It's a great idea, though. And also, if talking to Peter Costello is the answer, you're asking the wrong question, <laughs> as a rule. Best avoided. Yeah, what a fantastic discussion. Thanks so much. Joelle, I'm interested in your reflections um, on punk music. Okay. And, uh, you know, because for me, you know, that uh, rage and punk were a fantastic form of self-expression as a Gen X woman in the 90s, and mm. continues to be, really. Uh, it was kind of, you know, you were the kind of outlier women in a crowd of men expressing your own rage. And then, of course, there was the feminist punk movement as well. But yeah. love to hear from you as a poet how punk kind of create, helped you enable your own voice. Thanks. I mean, in the UK, so punk's a working class movement. Um, and I was part of the punk movement. I was basically a young teenager, frankly a child. So it was about... Um, it was an education and it was a politicization. It provided us with the punk lyrics are what educated me, are what led me into becoming a feminist myself. This was pre the feminist punk movement. It was a very masculine scene. I was one of the only um, women out on that scene. But there was um, a lot of LGBT people. We're all undercover. So it was quite normal for men to be wearing makeup and for women not to be. It kind of provided a space in which we could, we could expand and evolve and question. It's a counterculture, you know, and it was through that, through the punk movement, I started to come across poets like John Cooper Clarke, Attila the Stockbroker. There was only one woman poet in the UK when I was growing up called Jules. Um, and it's through that that I learned to write. It's literally music helped me learn to find the pen. So that's what I did, and it, you know, it's, it's an education, and it, it's a question. I think the most powerful movements are really questions, not answers, you know? Um, and awesome. so that's what it did for me. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Scott, again, sorry but to even up the climate and race. Um, I just worry about Australia, that we are still at the bottom of the pack as far as moving forward in climate change and our government especially if we if we get the same one back again they still use the excuses that they're doing everything and maybe they've managed to fool the rest of the world but we all know that it's only because the states and the people and the corporates have actually stood up and 
you know, put solar on their roofs and done things and not with much help from the government, but they're using that as their excuse that it's all hunky-dory. So yeah. what can we do about that? It's a great question. I don't think we're fooling anybody overseas. I think Australian delegations are routinely humiliated at international climate talks. They invited Santos to be at their, t to be on their stand. Like they're not even trying to hide it. So I, I would suggest two things. One is let's just absolutely demolish them in May. Like really, kind of a historic and spectacular electoral demolition. Let's. Okay, there's a bit of support out there for that idea, but that's only the first part, um, because. I'm, I, I argue, and I feel like a few, there's a certain amount of evidence to support this. Australia is suffering a thing that in South Africa and other places they call state capture. We're not just dealing with corruption. We're dealing with something a lot more systematic that involves the way the media behaves. It involves the revolving door between politics, industry, and the kind of communications fields. It involves huge amounts of money washing through uh, the political environment from these incredibly cashed up and very powerful industries who will destroy you and destroy your political career if you step out of line. It cost, it cost the Minerals Council $22 million. They spent that money in about six weeks to destroy Kevin Rudd's prime ministership over the mining tax. Then they blew up Julia Gillard and ended her prime ministership over the Clean Energy Act and elected Tony Abbott. Now, that infrastructure of state capture is still going to be there the day after that electoral demolition. Those industries will still be powerful. They'll still have a lock on the press. It's going to take more than just an election. Maybe this is a weird thing for an ex-politician to say, but I mean it. It's going to take a mass social movement. Talking about climate justice, bringing all of these issues in together and considering how they're all linked, because I think the time for fixing this electorally is long done. So let's change the government, but also let's elect people who aren't taking the money from Santos and Woodside and all these other things. Um, I just want to weigh in on a brief point. I've noticed that the, the way the conversation is unfolded has been to separate conversations about race and climate change as though they're not connected. Um, however, there's tremendous amount of research now that demonstrates that racism is fundamentally fueling climate change, which is why the organizers of the festival thought it was a good idea to bring these two conversations together. It's very clear that one of the main reasons the West isn't acting fast enough on climate change is because the majority of people who are being affected by it are brown people, are people in the third world. And so a fantastic book that addresses this issue is written by the anthropologist Ghassan Haj. The book is only 100 pages, it's a short book, but it's an essential read. It's called, Is Racism an Environmental Threat? And I highly recommend it. Beautiful. Mm. It's a great recommendation, thanks, Mohammed. In fact, keep that applause going and make it a rowdy Adelaide applause for our three speakers today. Michael Mohammed Ahmed. Um, many of their books are available in the bookshop. Not so much Joelle's because she's already too much of a sensation. Um, but do make sure you get copies of their books, get uh, copies of Amani Hayder's book uh, and keep reading. And um, I, I think revolution's the only possible answer. So go and have at it. Thank you. Thank you.